Now, today is the finale of our four-part series looking at the life of Joseph. And uh, his story is really a remarkable saga. And it demonstrates the kind of resiliency that we need in dealing with stuck moments in life. Uh, We've said it every week. We'll say it one more time. Stuck happens. There's just things that happen in our life which creates like a lack of momentum and forward progress. And we have to work through those seasons of our lives. Sometimes you can be stuck in your career or you might be stuck in a relationship. You can be stuck in a dark place emotionally, spiritually, mentally. You can even feel stuck with family dynamics. There's an old saying, you can pick your friends, but you don't pick your family, right? We get stuck with our family sometimes. There's lots of ways we can feel stuck. We've surveyed over Joseph's life some very specific incidents where he experiences this stuckness. One example is he gets stuck with a promise. That means that God has a very promising dream for Joseph's life. He's going to put him in a place of having significant influence. But when that dream is given, like it doesn't look like that's going to be true for him. Now, because what we're dealing with today, the last chapter of Joseph's story, these dreams are going to come back up again. So let's remind ourselves of what they are. Uh, First of all, he has a dream that he and his brothers are out in the field and they are putting together stalks of wheat. And as they bundle them up, the brothers' bundles stand up on their feet and bow down to Joseph's bundle. And then there's another dream. It's kind of more of a celestial scape where he sees himself in the skies and the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to Joseph. Now, for obvious reasons, his family was not down with these dreams. And so he he has to figure out, like, how is this going to be true? And so all of us, we said God has wonderful things planned for our lives. He's got promises for us. But sometimes there's a gap between promise made and promise kept. And we got to learn how to navigate that gap with humility. That means we let God step into the space, work out our promises, his time, his way. Stuck with a promise. Sometimes we get stuck with disappointment. Joseph experienced repeated heartaches. His brothers betrayed him. He was a victim of human trafficking. He was enslaved against his will falsely accused of a crime, thrown into prison. But through all of those disappointments, listen, God was still working within his setbacks. And so we learned an important lesson that in our disappointments, listen, don't check out on God. You hang on to God because he's still working through all the disappointments you experience in life. Your final chapter has not been written. Then we talked about being stuck with a new normal. Last week, stuck with a new normal. In Joseph's life, he finds himself in Egypt, a place he never imagined he would be with people he didn't really care to be with. But that's where he found himself. This is his new life in Egypt, his new normal. Life can throw you a curve. And when it does, it sometimes has a whole new set of circumstances that creates a new season for your life. It's your new normal. So sometimes the new normal happens on your job. You get a new set of expectations or it can happen within your relationship status or your family dynamics can shift. We can all find ourselves with a new normal. Now, here's what we learn from Joseph. When a new normal occurs, 
We don't have to kind of wait on God to get us to somewhere else before we can serve him in the season that we are in. In fact, we watch Joseph. He serves the Lord with a higher purpose right there in Egypt. Sometimes we think we've got to be somewhere else or with someone else in order for God to bless our life. No, no, no. If you will take where you are, put your whole heart and soul behind whatever you do, wherever you are, the Lord can bless you. He can add meaning and joy and fruitfulness to your life right there in your new normal. Today, we are wrapping up by looking at this part of Joseph's stuck story. We're going to talk about being stuck with hurt. Stuck with hurt. Everybody say hurt. hurt. Sometimes physical, emotional, spiritual, mental wounding can stay with us for a long time. We can find ourselves stuck with hurt. Now, there's a lot of things that we can get stuck with for a long time. Maybe you have gotten stuck with an earworm before. An earworm. Now, if you've been stuck with an earworm, don't feel bad because a joint research project from Dartmouth College and the University of Cincinnati found this, 98, 98%, 98% of the people are susceptible to getting an earworm. Now, thankfully, that's not a parasite. It's not an infection of any kind. An earworm is a term German brain researchers came up with to describe what happens to us, listen, when a song gets stuck in your head. All of us can have like melodies, beats, lyrics, song content that just kind of gets stuck in your head and you you stay with it hour after hour after hour. Here is a song sample of a few earworms. Now you're welcome because according to the research, it's going to take you 27 minutes to get one of those songs out of your head. Things can stick on us and listen, hurt is one of them. You can get stuck with hurt. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to look at two resources that can help us get unstuck from hurt, and that is forgiveness and perspective. Forgiveness and perspective. Take your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 41. If you're new with us, Joseph's story can be found in the book of Genesis, and last week we ended in chapter 41. We're going to pick up at the back end of that chapter. Now, this season of being stuck with hurt covers a lot of chapters in the book of Genesis. So because of time, we cannot comb through all of the rich amount of information that really would inspire you to see just 
how powerful it is that he overcame his hurt if you take in all that information. We can't do that. What we're going to do is just kind of hit some highlights, but it'll be enough to give you a sense of getting unstuck from hurt. Now, we ended in chapter 41 by looking at the kind of the high note of Joseph's life in Egypt where he successfully prepares Egypt to be able to withstand seven years of famine. They build these storehouses of grain. So verses 56 and 57 tell us this, with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt. And people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. Now, this situation sets up the opportunity for there to be a reunion between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers, 20 years earlier, sold him to human traffickers who took him to Egypt. So now we have the potential for a reunion. Genesis 42, verse 1. It says, when Jacob heard, now Jacob is the father of all of these brothers. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? The, the word look, it means to stare, and some experts say to stare stupidly. And it suggests laziness, idleness, thoughtlessness. Now, there's nothing in the text to say to us, hey, look at the difference between Joe and his brothers. But this scripture is inviting us to draw a comparison between Joseph's thoughtful preparation for the future and his brothers who carelessly sit around swatting flies, staring at one another with no plan or effort to preserve their family. Verse 2, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive, otherwise we'll die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. Now, at this point, like when you're watching a TV show or you listen to a podcast, there's sound effects that can be helpful because they signal certain things happening. So right here, we need a sound effect. Something like dun-dun-dun, okay? So Help me out with that. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, look at verse six. Since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Wow. Wow. Like the dream is being realized. Verse 7. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? He demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We've come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. 
Now, there was some real concern among Egyptians at that time that some outside groups would come during the famine and surveil them to see if they could find information which might be helpful for a future invasion. In fact, listen, there will be a military offensive that's launched within about a hundred years of this moment by outsiders who take over Egypt. They call it the Hyksos dynasty in Egyptian history. So these accusations are not out of place. Are you spies? Now also notice that Joseph is pretending. Like he's pretending not to know them. However, His emotional response to his brothers is not phony. Like he's pretending not to know them, but his reaction, his emotional response is real. He spoke harshly to them. The the word for harshly means an, an expression of intensity. It means that he chose his words carefully. He chose harsh words and he chose a harsh tone. To speak to them. Now, if you were here last week, remember with me that we detailed a very important moment in Joseph's journey to deal with some of his hurt. So at the birth of his first son, he named him Manasseh. Manasseh means God helps me to forget. And he pointed to two particular things that he wanted God's help to forget. He wanted to forget all the troubles that he had been through. Secondly, he wanted to forget the grief of the loss of connection with his family. And so when he names him Manasseh, you get the feeling like maybe he's saying, God has helped me forget. I'm over it. I'm over it. But is he? Is he? Some experts on the subject of emotional healing tell us that you can know when you are over something, when you can see a person who caused you hurt, or you can talk about a situation that caused you pain, listen, and you don't feel anything. Like, if you don't feel anything, you're over it. But if pain resurfaces over a person or your past, then that's an indicator you're still in process. And from every indication, Joseph doesn't appear that he has forgotten it. In fact, I don't think he's over it yet, but that's okay because he's in process. Can I I say to you, listen, it's okay to be in process. It's okay. The brothers respond to this harsh interrogation in verse 10, objecting, oh, no, my Lord, we're not spies. We're your servants, and we simply come to buy food. We're all brothers, members of the same family. We're honest men, sir. There's actually 12 of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now. And one of our other brothers is no longer with us. Now, the brothers referring to themselves as honest men must have been a trigger for Joseph. 
You're what? Honest men? Men of integrity? The last time I saw you, you deceitfully and ruthlessly sold me into slavery. I don't think you're honest men. It triggers his anger because verse 17, Joseph put them all in prison for three days. That's what we do, right? You stick it to me, I'll stick it to you. Verse 18. Oh, is he over it? Is he over it? Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I'm a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you'll live. If you're really honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families but you must bring your youngest brother back to me. This will prove that you're telling the truth and you will not die. To this they agreed. Now let's observe this. Deep hurt has lots of layers to it. Why would they mention one of our brothers is no longer with us? They're talking about an event that happened 20 years ago but almost like it happened last week. Maybe their being in Egypt triggered them, but with guilt. Because they knew when they sold their brother into slavery, it was to a caravan taking him to Egypt where he would be sold in the Egyptian slave market. Maybe for them, just being in Egypt brought up a lot of painful guilt. Verse 21. Speaking among themselves, they said, clearly, we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. Oh, y'all. I mean, that conjures up like memories of them sitting there while their brother is in the pit begging for his life when he's loaded up on a camel and the caravan is taking him away and he's pleading with his brothers, please, please, please. That voice haunts them. And they hear it over and over. Guilt. Now they had no idea that Joseph could understand what they were saying because Joseph had been speaking to them through an interpreter. But he heard every word. And as he began to process the details of their memories, it triggers for him a sadness. Verse 24, he turned away from them and began to weep. Is he over it? Over the last 20 years, I, I'm certain that Joseph has moments where he expresses his forgiveness toward his brothers. Like I'm sure there are moments in prayer and otherwise when he chooses and says, I forgive you. But there's an old saying, out of sight, out of mind. And it's a lot easier to say you forgive when the pain is not in front of you. 
And yet here they come back into his life and all this pain resurfaces. Remember, getting unstuck. It's a process. Next thing we read is they leave their brother Simon behind to stay in jail while the rest of the brothers are allowed to return to their father's home. Now, what we would expect to read next is that they dropped off their supplies and hurried back to Egypt to spring their brother. But that's not how the story goes. Genesis 43, verse 1. But the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. In other words, they'd been hanging out for months, maybe a year or more at home while their brother is sitting in a jail cell in Egypt. And it's only when they run out of food that they even consider going back to spring their brother. Verse 3, Judah replied, the man was serious. So I met Joseph. He was serious when he warned us, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send Benjamin with us, daddy, we'll go down and buy more food. But if you don't let Benny go, we won't go either. Now, Jacob is not happy about this arrangement because Benjamin has become now his favorite in replacement of Joseph. But there's no way around the situation, so he agrees to it, and they all go. Verse 15, they finally arrived in Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, these men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside the palace. Verse 27, after greeting them, Joseph asked, how is your father, the old man you spoke about? Is he still alive? Yes, they replied. Our father, your servant is alive and well. And they bowed low again. Now, all this proves to be a little much for Joseph. In verse 30, he hurries away from the room, goes to a private chamber where he broke down and he wept. Is he over it? Seeing his little brother, thinking about his father and all the moments that he had missed over the last 20 years started to stir up regret. And listen, regret can become a significant part of the hurts that we carry through life. Now for the remainder of their visit, all goes well. But when it came time for them to return home with fresh supplies, Joseph devised a little trick. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he does this. We may speculate. Perhaps he composes this little trick as a test to see whether or not his brothers would do right by their little brother Benjamin or would they treat him like they treated Joseph and abandon him? Or had they changed? Are they, are they like different men? Have they learned from their sins and are they different men? Maybe he composed what he's about to do as a little, as a little trick of a test. We don't know. It's also possible that this trick shows us that even someone as heroic as Joseph is just as jacked up as the rest of us. And when we're trying to deal with wounds, sometimes we do weird things to try to cope with our hurt. Yeah. 
So Genesis 44.1. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to the palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry and put each man's money back into his sack. The money they came to buy the grain, give it back to them. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack along with the money for his grain. So the manager did as Joseph instructed. Verse 4. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, Chase after them and stop them. When you catch up with them, ask them, Why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup? What a wicked thing you have done. Well, sure enough, the palace manager catches up with them, finds the cup in Benjamin's bag, brings them back to Joseph. One of the brothers, Judah, speaks up for the group and says, Oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. See, they're still carrying their guilt, what they did to their brother. So please, my Lord, let, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish that would cause, this would cause my father. Now seeing and hearing his brothers, listen, were no longer hardened, ruthless men anymore. Joseph, verse 1, chapter 45, could not stand it any longer. There were many people that were in the room. He said to his attendants, all of you out. Verse 2, he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the other Egyptians in the palace, they could hear him. Verse 3, I am Joseph. He told his brothers. Is my father still alive? I know we talked about this earlier, but is he okay? Is he okay? His brothers were speechless. Maybe one of the great understated statements in all the Bible. <laughs> they were stunned. This is Joseph standing in front of them. So he had to say it again. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Now that's a detail that only they would know. So they now know this is legit. But he says to them, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. For it was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your families. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. It was God who sent me here, not you. The term sent is the exact same word that's used to talk about God commissioning, sending prophets. So he can see God's hand in what has happened. Now guys, is this not an amazing reveal? Like this is an incredible Moment. Joseph then tells his family, his brothers, go get the rest of the family, bring them back to Egypt because there's still five years left of the famine and I can take care of you here. 
And so he goes and fetches the family and they come back and they have this incredible reunion in Egypt. What a great unstuck ending. If this were in the theater, we'd all be on our feet by now. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. It is amazing. But there's part of us that goes, is that real? Is that real? Did it really happen? I'm going to put on the screen a QR code along with a link to a website where you can watch a four-minute video, which you'll do kind of as your homework, so that you can watch this little piece that's going to give you historical archaeological information about Joseph really existing in Egypt at this time. It'll encourage your faith. It's real. It's real. And getting unstuck in your hurt is real. But there are two resources you're going to have to utilize to get unstuck in your hurt. The first one is forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's all throughout the story, isn't it? Forgiveness. Now, there's a couple of things about forgiveness you should note. One is this. Forgiveness has a point of beginning and a process that continues. There has to be a point of beginning, a moment when you acknowledge what has hurt you. What's been done to you or around you where you feel offended, where you feel hurt, you have to acknowledge that. Many experts who deal in the, in the field of victims and abuse will tell you that it's super important for you to forgive. Listen to this. To name your offense and to name your offender before the Lord. To not have a spirit of, oh, I don't matter. It's okay. It's okay. That'll never lead to forgiveness. To forgive, you're going to have to be honest with God and say to God, this person hurt me. This offense hurt me. You say, that doesn't sound very Christian. Oh, come on, my friend. What does God do with your sin? He names it. You've offended me. You've hurt me. Forgiveness has to have a point of beginning. You've got to start with a place of acknowledging like this hurt. Now, forgiveness has a centerpiece in Jesus' teaching and ministry. He taught about prayer and forgiveness. In fact, right after teaching about prayer and forgiveness, he makes this bold statement, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Can we let that sit there for a second? How many of you appreciate the free flow of God's forgiveness in your life? How many of you like being forgiven by the Lord? That should be all of us. Well, if we want that free flow of God's forgiveness to continue in our lives, then we have to learn to make the choice to forgive others. Now, let me tell you something. There's, there's aspects of that whole phrase of, gee, I don't understand. There's theological conversations that we could have to try to get our heads and hearts around that. All I know is this, that's serious enough to get my attention. 
So I want to make the choice to forgive when I'm holding on to hurt and I'm holding on to an offense. Now watch this. Forgiveness is not a one and done thing. It has to continue. Peter on one occasion, I love the way the Message Bible words this, got the nerve to ask Jesus about forgiving someone who causes hurt. How many times is sufficient, Peter asked. Seven? Jesus answered, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. Now the point is not forgiving 490 times. The point is you have to keep on forgiving. Because watch this, some days you forgive and you're good. But then the next day rolls around and you back angry again. And you have to keep on forgiving. Joseph's story reminds us forgiveness is a process. Here's another thing about forgiveness. It's not complete until we fully release the debt for the offense. The New Testament word for forgive means literally to release. It comes out of the financial sector. The term was used to talk about a financial debt. Now, the only way a financial debt could be resolved is you pay it or the person could release it. They could forgive you of the debt. That term was used then in a variety of ways to refer to lots of different kinds of debt obligations. Emotional debts, physical debts, mental debts, spiritual debts, released, forgiven. Now how we release, how we forgive, listen, is to put the debt that we feel we're owed into God's hands. You release it when you put it into God's hands. That doesn't mean you're letting somebody off the hook. That means that you are releasing the debt that you feel into God's hands. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says we have to forgive one another even as God, watch this, in Christ forgave us. That means that Jesus has paid the debt for every sin. Every sin. And the sin against you, the hurt and the offense that you have encountered, that's just another sin for which Christ died. And so you don't want to withhold forgiveness for something Jesus died for. You want to release it. Put it into his hands. Put it into his hands. If you're going to get unstuck from your hurt, you have to forgive. You have to make a choice to forgive. You have to make an ongoing decision to forgive, and you've got to put it in God's hands. Here's the second resource you need in order to get unstuck in your hurt, and that is perspective. Perspective. The theological perspective that's repeated over and over and over in Joseph's story is God is sovereign. And no matter what happens, God remains in control and he will use, listen, even the worst things that happen to us for a greater good and for his glory. There's no place that this is spelled out any more clearly 
than in Genesis 50:20, which is the end of Joseph's story. At the end, Jacob dies. The, the, the father dies in Egypt. And the brothers have a concern that now Joseph is going to settle the score. He's been kind of tolerant of us as long as daddy's alive. But now that daddy is gone, he's going to settle the score. And so they come to him and say to him, will you forgive us? Will you forgive us again? Will you forgive us again? Now, I think, I think Jacob was willing to offer them like a fresh word of forgiveness. Like, sure, I'll say it again. If you need me to say it again, I'll say it again. But let me tell you what I can do better for you is share with you my perspective. And so in Genesis 50, 20, to the the question, will you forgive us again? Here's what Joseph said. You intended to harm me. You did. You meant to hurt me. That's what you meant to do. But God, intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Can I tell you honestly, you are not going to get unstuck from your hurt until you learn to gain perspective. You may not understand all the things that are happening around you or all the things that have happened to you. You may not be able to reconstruct your past and kind of give an explanation of like, well, where is God's hand in all this? It may still be very cloudy to you, but what should be clear to you is God never gives up on you. He never abandons you. God is continuing to work in your story, even through the worst that you go through. He is still there. In fact, he's working. Listen, All the things that have happened in your life. He's working all those things together for good. Can we make this confession together? Romans 8.28. Will you say this out loud with me? And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's it. That's it. You'll never get unstuck from hurt until you own that perspective. God is good. God is still at work. My story's chapter, the last chapter, has not been written. God is still working. Stand with me. I know hurt can happen. Happens to me, happens to you. And that hurt can stick to us. And we can find ourselves in a moment just like this one. And we're thinking about the things that have happened to us. And it's still fresh to us. It's still alive to us. We feel the hurt. We feel the offense. Could I encourage you to put your attention on this? Isaiah chapter 53. This is a prophecy about Jesus and he fulfilled it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, look at that, by his wounds were healed. Jesus was wounded for you. And his wounds and his grace has the ability to take where you are right now, where you are right now, 
and extend to you a grace that will allow you, watch this, to begin to forgive the people in your life that have hurt you. Can you just begin right now where you're standing, right there, just begin to forgive the hurts that you feel. Say to Jesus, it's in your hands. By your wounds, you heal. It's in your hands, Jesus. I forgive. I forgive. And then settle yourself on his perspective. God is still working in your story. He's still present. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He's still present. He's still working. He's still moving. He's still making a way. You let him keep writing your chapter. If you need the grace from Jesus to deal with some hurts and wounds, receive it today. But watch this. Some of us in the room are more identifying, listen, with the brothers than we are with Joseph because we're carrying some guilt for some hurts that we caused. We feel the weight and the pain of our guilt. Can I say to you, by his wounds, you are healed. Will you be honest with God and take responsibility for the things that you've done? Maybe the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to have to go to some people and ask for some forgiveness. But I want you to know that his grace that binds up the heart of the hurting is the same God who gives you grace for the hurts that you've caused. 